So in this episode today, we have Alan McCarthy. He's primary principal at Alice Smith. And we have Kenny Ouija. He's a class teacher in year three. Let's get into this one right now. Welcome to Professional Learning, the podcast that's all about sparking courageous exploration. Each week, we'll be diving into a range of topics to prepare and embed our Book of Dreams work. We'll be exploring the skills and strategies in order to implement these ideas. Alan, Kenny, great to talk to you today. How are you both? Oh, we're good. Yeah, doing really, really great. Excited to have this conversation. Great. I've been really looking forward to this. Good to hear what you both have to say. Alan, just tell us a little bit about how long you've been at the school for. Sure. This is my fourth year. So I joined uh, really at the peak of COVID. So uh, a couple of challenging first couple of years. Uh, but luckily, in the last uh, few years, we've begun to really start looking forward, looking to the future. And some of the things we're going to discuss today is about what our exciting future looks like. So um, yeah, in my fourth year now, and exciting times ahead, I think. Okay. All right. Well, keen to get into this episode. But before we do that, Kenny, just tell us how long you've been at the school for? I've been here for two years now. Yeah, two years in um, Alice Smith. And where were you before? Before this, I was in Hong Kong. So yeah, I was teaching at the Hong Kong International School um, and at some American school. So this is my first foray back in the British system after having been 10 years out in an American curriculum school. Okay, right. Fantastic. So Alan, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today then. Sure. Um, the, the focus really today is uh, we've actually given it the title of shifting the power back to students or to learners. Uh, and really what we're focusing on today is how we can cultivate or create a learning experience for, for students, which is centered around the students being shapers of, of that experience. And in order for them to be shapers of their learning experience, or at least co-constructors of their learning experience with the educators, um, what, what, what do we need to create and build uh, and how do we build capacity in students to do that successfully? And ultimately, I suppose what we're talking about is how we, how we genuinely and rigorously in one way uh, empower students. Okay, got it. Right. Thank you for that. Kenny, tell us your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think um, this is a big topic and it's something that you know, this school is really, really exploring. And there's a lot of changes that's underway right now um, in order for us to be able to think a little bit more about what it looks like to have a co-constructed classroom. You know, um, if we're thinking about education in the traditional sense, there is, you know, there tends to be this idea of this asymmetrical model of power. And what I mean by that is, you know, the teacher teach, they stand in the front of the room and the student sits and they learn. And there's this passivity in this uh, traditional model, you know, that I think we're trying to break away from. You know, we want to be able to create a classroom where instead of the adults being the sole bearers of knowledge, that we want to be able to um, create an environment where, where we are facilitating knowledge and um, honoring students as you know, humans who also bring knowledge into the classroom. And I think this is a really, really important part of Alice Smith's future right now in order for us to be able to explore it, what it means to create, you know, these humans and honor them as independent thinkers and having agentic control over the kinds of things that they want to learn in our classrooms. Uh, and Kenny, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, actually, over since you joined Alice Smith. Um, can you, and I'll maybe give some insights too, but can you give us a little, give me a little bit of insight into, you know, how this entered into your mind as an educator initially? So I, I know, for example, my grounding in this would have been early years. So I initially was an early years educator. Uh, and it, so therefore a huge influence on how I think as an educator is rooted in my initial training as an early years uh, teacher. 
and then my initial years and experience in an early years environment. Um, and of course, being an early years person, the first the first way of thinking as an educator is 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 as a co learner alongside the student, and, and therefore that's your your first mode of thinking. Um, that's how you think about learners. Uh, and very often you you take the the approach that the the learner can bring as much to the learning experience as you can as an educator. How about yourself? Is is, is yours similar? Yeah, very similar. I mean, if I think about my identity and how it's rooted in my profession, I am first and foremost um, an early childhood educator. You know, I I'm here to be able to cultivate uh, cultivate the minds of young children. But I don't think you know this about me that I actually started my professional career in corporate world, in the corporate world. <laughs> I, when I left university, I was actually a editorial journalist for a luxury concierge company. So I had your bog standard desk job where I sat down and I typed away all day, clickety clack on a keyboard. And, you know, I do sit and I think, where are all of the skills um, that I've learned in school being, a, you know, and what are all of the skills that I've been learning in school and how is it applied to my desk job. And eventually I quit my corporate job and I went back into education and I decided um, to use my PGC um, and be able to become a qualified teacher. And I thought, wow, actually thinking retrospectively, all of the things that I learned in school isn't so much poetry analysis or how to do addition and subtraction. There is so much more to that. You know, um, we are learning poetry so that we can get build this analytical mind. Um, you know, we are learning about maths and how to approach problem solving so that we can critically analyze different kinds of problems and using this process-driven method into other areas of our lives. So, you know, it's kind of like a confluence of my educational background and understanding, you know, how education works, but then also how is that going to look like in the adult world, in, you know, the working world and in employment? Thanks, Kenny. You've touched on many themes there, actually, many of which we'll we'll kind of dig into a bit deeper uh, as we as we go. And one of the things we talked about in in sort of preparation for this podcast actually was the the natural connection of our, the topic of conversation today with the purpose work at the school, and and the, the the futuristic aims of the school and what learning will look like in the future at our school. And in particular, we talked about the the, the three pillars: the our world, our community, and our, our students. And in, uh, in looking at our students, there are a number of key sort of aspects to that pillar, which are, are very, very significant and important to what we're going to talk about today. So some of those are uh, empowering students, um, creating conditions for students to be their best selves, uh, creating conditions where students are courageous and curious. Um, so we're going to really dig into that. And the first thing I want to explore with you is, you know, Dylan William has this famous quote, as an educator, how do we improve the learner and not the work? Uh, and that sort of holistic view of a learning experience, and it goes beyond just what a child is learning right now. So how do we shape and, and how do we develop a child very holistically? What, what are your first kind of views on that one? It's something that I think about quite regularly in my classroom. When I'm thinking about the children under our care and how they show their learning and how they experience the teaching, I think about the kinds of mediums that we create in a classroom and how that communicates uh, to them the world that they are living in and also the kind of ecosystem that they're in in, in, in their learning journeys. You know, I, I think about the way that we document their learning. Is it through just writing? Is it through just them 
writing a response and showing us what they think about a piece of reading through their personal response, or is it a collection of different kind of learning evidences? When I think about shaping the learner and not the work, what I really, really want to get to the core of is what do my learners know and what are the ways they can show me? So if I think about it in those kind of terms, learning isn't documented in any one single format. It becomes a myriad of modalities. It would be the conversations that they're having. It could be the conversations that I'm having with their parents. It could be a drawing that they kind of decided to draw in their free time. There's many different points where we are able to see the learners and their capability and what they can show and what they can demonstrate as the understanding that they have about our world. Wow, it's quite a lot there, actually. I'm just, I'm just thinking, actually, one, one thing you mentioned there was the modalities, so different modalities, right? I suppose if we bring that down to sort of very practical terms, and I'm an educator in a classroom, and you think about the relatively traditional way that we evidence learning in the classroom, which will be a look in the child's book. There might be variation, but quite a lot of uh, written uh, feedback, for instance. And I know from speaking to you, you invest a lot in you know the concept of conferencing uh, and really conferencing with the student about uh, learning over time and growing the learner as opposed to giving feedback on individual pieces of work. I know there are so many layers to that, one of which is just the messaging to that child that learning is messy. It happens over time. It's not linear and it isn't all in one in a book. C can you elaborate on that a little bit and what it, what it feels like in your classroom and how you can kind of create that atmosphere? Yeah, absolutely. I think just thinking a little bit about what you were saying, learning is messy. It's not linear. And when we want our children to show their understanding by writing on the lines of a page, we want everything to be neat and tidy in some sort of way. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, the mediums we create communicate to them the kinds of um, environment that they're growing up in and the kinds of environment that they're learning in. Learning is incredibly messy. Now, if we're thinking about a book and we're thinking about a page and we're thinking about marking a page and we're crossing out, say, for example, a misspelled word or maybe a uh, mispunctuated sentence. Oh, let's add a full stop here. Or maybe, oh, let's have a look at the capitalization of the sentence. You, you're missing a capital letter here. What we're doing there is actually hyper-correct. What we're being right there is being hyper-corrective. We're not really getting to know our learner and what they are like. We're, we're seeing the kinds of minute mistakes that doesn't really tell us too much about the learners. And you mentioned about conferencing. Now, for me to be able to get to understand my learners a little bit more is through dialogue and through conversation. If I sat down with a piece of work in between me and a writer, and I say, can you please say, talk to me a little bit more about what you're writing here? What are you finding challenging right now? What are you proud of in the piece? I can really understand the struggles that my writer is going through. And through that, I'm able to plan more accordingly and be able to plan together and have the involvement of the writer, the student writer sitting opposite me, to be able to have this collaborative conversation where I can really, really drive their learning forward. And let's think about the buy-in. When you get handed back a piece of work, and I think we've all experienced this in high school or in secondary school, in primary school, and it's filled with red ticks and red crosses, how does that make us feel? It can be quite soul-destroying when we've put so much effort in a piece of work. 
But when we have those kind of productive conversations and collaborative conversations, those conferences, we're eliciting responses and we're involving our learners in the process of learning. Oh, that's really cool, actually. It, it, it reminds me of uh, somebody I came across a number of years ago who specialized in writing, actually. His name is Matt Glover. Have you had his training? Oh, yes. Yeah. So so Matt Matt talks about, he uses the phrase, actually, honoring approximations. And, and that's the idea that when you work with children, you you see where, they're, where they are. We've talked about this before. You see what they're capable of. You see the level of quality that they're working at. Um, you dig into their metacognition. You really understand them as a learner. And you build from there, as opposed to seeing the gaps that may appear in a child's learning or what gaps they need to close. Or it's really seeing it from a deficit perspective. And I know that you've mentioned the person, I think it's Peter Johnston, yeah. He he sounds really interesting in the sense that he talks about how you, how you verbalize that in your dialogue with the student and how that really empowers the student to feel like they're their potential is limitless um, and they, they, they're hugely capable and there is no ceiling on what they can achieve. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about, about Johnston and, and how, how that's kind of shaped you? I'm really, really excited about Peter Johnston. He's this amazing New Zealander who talks about the power of language and how they shape our children's mind. Um, and one of the examples that I'm going to use now is one of the examples for, from his books. We're doing a spelling test and we're standing in front of the classroom and this is what it could sound like. Today, we're going to be doing a spelling test and we are going to have a look at all of the things you don't know. So try your best. Off you go. I want us to be in the seat of a learner right now. Now, if we think about how we might receive that as learners, already we're put it at a disadvantage because we're kind of being minimalized and we're not really being honored with, you know, all of the skills a speller can have in tackling a check-in assessment. But Peter Johnson recommends for us to shape our language or to leverage our language in a strength-based perspective. And this is what it could sound like instead, which is, hey, everybody, today we're going to be doing a spelling check-in and you get to show off all of the things you already know. Now, if you think about the difference of what it sounded like before, which is at a deficit model, and we think about what it would sound like now from a strength-based model, that empowerment and that sense of motivation is going to be much greater because you're honoring children as already thinking, as already learning, and as already doing the things that you're teaching them. You know, the first thing I think about when you use that language actually is I imagine myself as a student in your classroom and how that slight tweak on language would make me feel. It also brings me back to when we interviewed you actually, which was interesting in itself, which was a virtual interview and you were in Hong Kong and you had to teach us that mini lesson. And actually it, it has real connections and parallels to how we felt in that lesson too, which was amazing. You, you just feel capable, you feel believed in. And we talk a lot about that here, actually, the power of teacher beliefs and the impact that they can have and how they can transmit sort of this limitless belief to the child. And the child feels like I am capable of anything. There is no ceiling, which is really hugely important, as we know, from Jenny Donahue's work. It also leads me to the much of what we talked about is, is, as you say, it's beyond the book. It's much more global and holistic than that and much deeper than that in terms of what the child experiences and what the child shows and demonstrates in terms of their learning. It's then bringing my thinking on to this idea of when we interact with the child in school, that interaction is the combination of, you know, the child learning and the child being cared for and feeling safe and feeling capable and feeling believed in. So really, it's that combination of learning and well-being science. 
and, and how those two combine as an educator and how you never interact with a child and separate those those areas, learning and well-being. You know, as an educator, what does that look like in your in your classroom? Because I know you do a lot of work on the language of being comfortable with making mistakes. And I, I know it's very visible in your classroom as well and it's co-constructed in messaging, which is in Child Speak too. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that I always go back to is that we are relational creatures, that we humans, we, we thrive from connection and relations and the quality of our teaching and the quality of our learning is as good as the quality of our relationship with our students. And so that's always my starting ground. And this is something that, you know, when we do our PGCEs, we're constantly reminded that we need to have good relationship with students in order for them to be able to be better learners. And it's the how part. That's the tricky part. Now, for me, language is incredibly important. My <laughs> BA was in linguistics. And so I analyze language like... There's no tomorrow. Everything, everything I listen to, I, I kind of nitpick. So I really, really become quite reflective of the kind of conversations that I have with students. Um, for me, if I want to be able to build trust in students, I can't tell them to trust me. If I want them to become more resilient, I can't tell them to be resilient. If I want them to be able to have a better relationship with me. I can't tell them to have a better relationship with me. I have to do that through actions and through words. And so in a smallest grassroots form, what that might look like is if a student approached me and they say, Mr. Ouija, I have a problem. The first thing, my initial reaction is, oh my goodness, this is a bit of connection right now. And this is them building relationship with me. I cannot let this instant get away from me. And so the first thing I would say is, I am so glad we're talking about this. When you have that moment where you are accepting that bit of connection, immediately what grows from that is trust. We always talk about having a growth mindset. And a lot of the times we want our children to have growth mindset. And we, so what that might look like is to say to students, let's have a growth mindset. Everybody, let's be growth mindset thinkers. And that's all very well and good to be able to embed that into our classroom conversations. But telling is not the same as teaching. And so another strategy that I might use is to dramatize mistake making when I make them. Oh my goodness, I just made a mistake. Oh, what an incredible learning moment. Now I'm able to learn from this. Everyone, did you see that? Did you see how I just made the mistake? Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, everybody, can you just give me a big round of applause? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that moment is able to demonstrate to children that we are normalizing mistake, that failure is part of the process of learning. And what is, what is the reward from that? Is that when we are able to model that, we can park the idea of perfectionism. Now, Dr. Brene Brown, who is an emotions researcher, says something that I always, always go back to in my own life. And that is, if we're in the driving seat and the driving seat is perfectionism, who is sitting shotgun to it? Shame. And so in the moments where we aren't able to model effectively mistake making and failure as a, every, as a daily part of learning, then what could occur for our students in themselves when they do make a mistake is shame. And what is shame? The fear of disconnection. I was actually just about to come on to that because we had the most amazing conversation uh, two days ago about shame and resilience. 
And something that you really opened my, my mind and eyes to was the response to certain situations, which are everyday situations in schools and even in parenting, where your child or a student might say, I'm not good at maths or I can't draw or something like that. And the, the usual response, and I, I, my response usually is, oh, you shouldn't think of that. Of course you're good at maths. You can do this. You're, 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 you're a mathematician. You need to believe in yourself. You're absolutely a great drawer. And then when you open my mind up to a different way of thinking and a different way of responding, uh, I wouldn't say I felt shame myself. I probably did in some ways in terms of looking back at the amount of times I've done this. Can you explain how you would approach that, which is so different to anything I've heard before? Yeah. Can I just also say that I'm not above doing that also? <laughs> There's been many instances where I hear a child sitting in my class um, and make what seemingly is an innocuous comment of, you know, um, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at cutting. And my first instinct is to go, no, you are very good at cutting. You must believe in yourself. And I think that is the instinct that most of us have because we want to just make our kids feel better. We want to be able to make our students feel better in those moments where they are, you know, um, where they are showing self-doubt. I think in those instances where the children under our care expresses discomfort in what they're doing, what they're doing is protecting. There is this part of them that they want to be able to protect they want to be able to get to the punch first, which is, you know, if I say I'm really bad at this, then nobody needs to notice how bad I am at this. And when our instinct is to jump in for the quick fix, what the child could be experiencing more is further disconnection. Oh, what I just said right now is being questioned. Oh, what I said just now is bad. Oh, now, now I feel even, maybe now I feel even more shame. Maybe I'm even more disconnected with my teacher and the people around me for saying what I said. And what is the antidote to shame? It's to lean in. It's to be able to see and be seen and listen and be heard. And so what would that look like? When a child is expressing discomfort in what they're doing, it might come out as an innocuous comment and it could sound like, I'm really bad at this. Instead of going for the fix, we could lean in and say, oh my goodness, that sounds really uncomfortable. Tell me more about that. And when we're doing that, we are de-escalating shame and we're telling the child through our implicit communication skills that we want to know more, that they're not sitting alone with their feelings. And at that moment, we're actually building resilience for them because they're going from distress mode into rational mode. Ah, wow, this is someone that I can talk to about this. I can open up about my discomfort. This is a person that I can trust. So it goes back to what I was saying before, instead of telling the children that we, they can trust us, instead of telling them that they are good learners and they're good communicators, we need to be able to show them through our verbiage and through our actions. Thanks, Kenny. Uh, I love that story. Uh, just the way that you explained that actually is really, really cool. And there's so much depth to it as well. And when I think about the importance, I, I say this a lot, actually, being an early years educator, the, I have an obsession with the importance of every single interaction with every single child every time uh, you know it's it's sort of this belief that you can maximize the opportunity every every single time by ensuring that you're there for the child you're noticing you're listening you never dismiss you acknowledge you don't judge and i think what you described there is an incredible example of that really really cool example 
something that I've learned a lot from, which I'm definitely going to take forward in my interactions with children. Uh, it's really, really cool. It, it also takes us on to the broader concept of resilience, which uh, we've talked about a little bit as well. It's a really interesting one, actually, isn't it? Because I, I know that in more recent times, there was, you know, the, the more sort of, I suppose, established understandings of resilience have been have been debunked in the sense that, you know, children build resilience through hardship or through difficulties or through challenging times or even adults as well. And it's it's kind of similar to what you were saying previously. You don't teach resilience in that way. You, you know, you don't bring difficulties or challenges or allow children to struggle and they build resilience as a result. Uh, and I know you've done a lot of reading into this and you're very passionate about this area. Can you give us an, your understanding of what you think the concept of resilience is and also how it's built and how it's shaped and formed, especially in our learners. Yeah, I think resilience is under scrutiny right now. There is a big lens shone on it, you know, with I think especially following COVID as well, because resilience has sometimes been resembled to being productive to a fault. <laughs> it's productivity over capacity. It is about being able to grind to a point where you ignore your discomfort in order to meet the deadline, in order to get the job done. And we simply cannot have that standard for any human being, let alone children. And so what resilience look like in children is for them to be seen and heard, which is what I was mentioning before. But I want to use an analogy that um, this amazing child psychologist uses, and her name is um, Dr. Becky Kennedy. And she talks about how when children are learning, you don't just throw them in the pool and expect them, know, uh, expect them to know how to swim. You got to be able to put them into the pool, give them instructions, be with them in the pool as they go through their productive struggles. And building resilience is about building distress tolerance. And we can't do that by telling a child that they need to be more resilient. And we can't do that by putting a child through an excessive amount of hardship and expect them to be able to thrive. Because if we are able to transpose that in adults, what happens when you have an excessive amount of stress and distress? Burnout. And what might that look like in a child? Burnout and trauma. For us to be able to build resilient children, we need to be able to understand the capacity that they have and the approach that they have to task completion and to managing task. And whenever they go through certain kinds of challenges, we need to be able to stop and acknowledge their best efforts instead of remarking what they have produced as a product. Oh my goodness, Mohammed, what you did right here, I can see you put so much effort into it. And the color combination that you've used in this drawing tells me that you've been really thinking about the color. For that, we are already building a resilient child because we are seeing their effort and we're acknowledging the kinds of process that's gone into a piece of work. Kenny, it's great hearing you talk about this. And Alan, I, I love everything you've been saying uh, on this episode here. I'm keeping an eye on time. We're going to need to bring this to a close in a moment. But I'm, I'm wondering if anyone's listened to anything today in this episode, and if they had any follow-up questions, what should people do? Anybody in the Alice Smith community uh, knows who we are and can contact us for sure. In terms of these areas, I think Kenny would be good to talk to in, or recommend things in terms of uh, people who've influenced him and readings that he's been involved in before. 
or publications or ad- advice areas that he's delved into before. So sources, I suppose, of advice would be interesting. Uh, so, you know, his Brené Brown work and his Johnson work, uh, Kenny, I don't know what you'd recommend maybe for people to read or tap into. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's already happening as well is we're having these greater conversations between teams and that we have a greater collaborative effort between campuses. And I think these conversations will continue with our Book of Dreams that's going to be rolled out over the next few years. And of course, you know, Alan and I are two people that you can speak to, but there are definitely going to be more and more opportunities in the future where these kind of collaborative conversations will really become an integral part of the change that we're experiencing right now. I love that. Well, look, Alan and Candy, thank you both for being here. Really, really interesting talking to you both. Great to be listening to this the whole way through. Uh, and I'm sure the audience have appreciated it too. So thank you both very much for your time. Oh, thanks, Simon. Thank you very much, Simon. That's it for this episode. We hope you can take something from this podcast to support your implementation of the Book of Dreams. Please feel free to share it and contact us if you have any questions or ideas related to it. And don't forget to tune in next time for the next episode. We'll see you then. Bye for now.